0: Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Hey, welcome to Easter Sunday at Canton Church. We're so glad that you are here. You know, there is a building in Pyongyang, North Korea, called the Yukong Towers, And it also goes by the name of the uh, Willows, I guess, is is one way that it could be translated. And in this, this building in 1987, they were starting to build what they believed at that time in North Korea was going to be the largest building in the world. It was going to be 105 stories tall. It was going to be kind of a mixed-use development. It was going to be a hotel and other things inside of this building. And they began building it in 1987. It was shaped like a pyramid, and it was going to be amazing. It was going to be kind of a pinnacle you know, piece of construction for North Korea at that time. And then in 1992, when the Soviet Union had some economic crises and things like that, the, the development began to, to, to stall out, and it eventually stopped. And so from 1992, it sat empty for about 10 years or so, uh, maybe even 15, and at some point they started working on it again, a little by little, little by little, but this shell of a building that had been started in 1987 and really all the way to 1992 just sat empty. It was just some frames, it was just a little bit of the outside, it really had already kind of come to the shape of a pyramid, but there were no windows, no exterior casing at all, and nothing was happening on the inside. And so it began to be developed again, maybe in the early to uh, mid-2010s, or 2000s, I guess, before 2010. And so they started working on it again, and the hope was that it was going to be uh, opened up in 2011, but that didn't happen. And then they were going to open it up in 2012, but that didn't happen. And then they were going to open it up in 2013, but that didn't happen either. And so today, if you were to go to Pyongyang, North Korea, you would just see this. There's nothing happening on the inside. They have come in and put windows on the outside of the building, but there's nothing taking place on the inside. And as I read about this story, and as I looked at this piece of incredible architecture and the plans that they had, that in 1987 would have made it the tallest building in the world, but today it would just be one of the tallest buildings in the world, I thought about this picture and how it really epitomizes what Christianity and faith would be all about if we didn't have Easter Sunday. If the story of Christianity was just contained to finishing on Friday, we would be no better than a picture like this. We would be no better than a building that was never really finished the way it was supposed to be finished. A story that was unfinished, unwritten, all the way to completion. We would be like maybe having some exterior shell, but having no life on the inside. This building that was supposed to be a hotel had nothing going on on the inside, And if Easter ended on Good Friday, while that would be incredible, it would be an unfinished story. If you go to Google and you kind of just type in unfinished stories by famous authors, you're going to read some of the names of the world's most prolific authors. And you're going to see that they started stories and started series, but they didn't finish them because either they gave up on the story or their life ended before they could finish it. This is a sad and tragic tale for someone that has... A story. And so if Easter and Christianity and faith ended on Good Friday, while it would be incredible, it would be unfinished. This past Friday night, we celebrated Good Friday here with two identical worship services. And man, it was such a powerful time at both 6 and 7.30. And here's how we concluded both of our services. Reading from John chapter 19, beginning in verse 40, we said this. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen... This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, this is the end of chapter 19, and we can easily see today that there's more to the story. We know this, probably, because if you're reading a paperback printed Bible, what you see at the end of John chapter 19 is you see John chapter 20. If you have an app or some kind of device there in front of you and you're scrolling, you can see that there's something taking place after John 19. And so this is the end of a chapter, but it's not the end of the story. My friend Marty Baker, who's a pastor in Augusta, actually says this a lot, and he said it this weekend at his church, I believe. Never mistake the end of a chapter for the end of the story. I think in our lives, if we're not careful, we assume when one piece of the story comes to completion, that it's the end of the story. But if we were to stop at John 19, if we were to stop at the cross, if we were to stop at that place in the story that God had written for all of us, it would be left unfinished. It would be like a shell without full life inside. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, or again, take out a device. And we're going to go to John chapter 20, and we're going to read, as Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story. This is what it says in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. We'll read 1 and 2, and then we're going to jump ahead to verse 11. This is what it says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Skip to verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Skip to verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. You and I have an advantage over those early Christians, those early followers of the way, because we do get to read things after the story's been completed. Like, if you can think about your favorite television show, your favorite movie, maybe your favorite book, imagine reading the story as it's being written. Imagine getting a copy of the, the script to your favorite show, or imagine, imagine getting, like, an early first edition, kind of while it's being written, from your favorite author of what they're intending to write. And imagine coming to the end of what has been written and going, what's next? Like, wh- where does the story go from here? Like, how does it resolve? How does it finish? Wh- where is it going to take, take us next? And... I think this is what we often set apart from our reading of scripture is this idea that while it was taking place, these characters, these individuals that we sometimes kind of take away from their humanity and we think they're just flat people, flat beings in this story. They were humans like you and I and they were living this out in real time. And so instead of being able to go to the end of John 19 and go, okay, well, John 20 is coming and flipping the page and going to John 20 and seeing that early in the morning on the first day of the week and seeing that there were angels there and then Jesus shows up in just a matter of seconds, Mary was distraught. From Friday to Sunday, Mary didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't know what had happened. Like, here's Jesus who claimed to be this incredible guy, the Son of God. He had actually interacted with her, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. He had interacted with her and kind of proven she thought that he was who he said he was. And yet, from Friday to Sunday, all she was left holding is he died on the cross. And she didn't know what to do with that, and so she shows up on Sunday, and she goes to the tomb, and she sees that it is empty, and Jesus is no longer there. And then she sees that there are two angels there, one at the head and one at the foot of the place that Jesus had been laid. And so she's crying, and she's trying to figure out what happened here and what's going on, but she did not realize what God was trying to do in the story. She she, she couldn't see what you and I easily see because we know how the story plays out because we've read the end and now we're back in the middle. She didn't have that luxury. She was living this out in real time and could not understand what was happening. And so she sees Jesus there, but she doesn't realize that it's actually Jesus. She doesn't actually realize what God is doing. And so look at this in verse 15. The second part of verse 15, this is what she says. She says, Thinking he was the gardener, Jesus, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Sir, if you have carried him away. Here's Jesus standing in front of her, the one that she knew had died, that they had laid in the tomb, and here he is resurrected back to life, and she sees him, but she doesn't recognize him. Now, I realize this may be a little bit confusing. My wife and I were talking about this a little bit even today. Like, I realize it's like, how did she not recognize him? I don't know if there was something about his resurrected body that made his appearance different. We see later in a different part of Scripture that he was actually talking to two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize him, and they didn't know even during a whole conversation. So I don't know if his resurrected body caused his appearance to be different, or if he chose to kind of be hidden, his true identity to be hidden until he chose to reveal it. I don't know. But what I do know is that she mistakes him for the gardener, and so she says to him... If you'll just tell me where you put him, I'll go get him. Now, Mary is an interesting character in Scripture. Because Mary is a lady that we meet over in Luke chapter 8. She is a woman that is described in Luke chapter 8 as having been possessed by many demons before she was supernaturally healed. And so this is a lady who, again, in her past, she had this very... Kind of what today kind of seems for some of us like a really weird thing happened to her. She was demon-possessed, and not just by one demon, as if that's not a big deal, but like by seven or eight demons. and like that's, You're like, what in the world does that even mean? But here's what I want you to think about for Mary. If your life, if your body at any point in your past had been in a place where you felt like you didn't have control, like you felt like something else was controlling you, This demon possession that we read about in Luke 8, we're only given kind of one sentence about her story. But if you can imagine being possessed, having something inside of you that was trying to control you, control your actions, control your words, control your behavior, and then you're supernaturally healed from that. Can you imagine how you would respond with your life beyond that moment? If if Mary was anything like me, I would try to manage things. I would try to control things. You know, something else was controlling you. I would try to now control things. I would try to fix things myself. I'm a natural fixer. Just ask my wife every time she starts talking. I jump into how can I fix this mode. And she's often like, I don't need you to fix this. I just need you to be quiet and listen to me for a minute. I got no amens from any wives in the room. That's okay. That's all right. I kind of thought that was a little more universal. Maybe I'm just the oddball here. But, you know, I... I feel like maybe I'm a little bit like Mary, and I I would have tried to fix things. I would have said what she said to the gardener. Sir, if if you'll just tell me where you took him, like, if you'll just tell me what happened to the body, like, I'll go get him. I'll bring him back. We don't even have to tell anybody. Like, I'll just bring him back and put him back, because I don't know what you did here, but I'll take care of this. Do you do that? Do I do that? Is that something that we struggle with sometimes? Because here's, here's the reality. Mary was in the middle of a scene in the story that God was writing, and it was playing out exactly like God intended it. And yet, because Mary didn't understand, she was trying to rewrite the story on that morning. I'm so guilty of that. When I don't understand how this scene is going to play out, when I don't understand exactly what God is doing, I start to try to rewrite the story to fit a little better the way that I think it's supposed to play out. So a lot like Mary, I walk around playing God instead of letting God be God. Like I walk around trying to be the story writer instead of being a player in the story that God is writing. Now look at this in verse 16. Very short, simple. I want us to read this. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus called her very specifically by her name. Now, the name Mary was fairly common. It's even common still today, but it was fairly common in that day. There were a lot of Marys. We even read a a lot about Marys in Scripture and in the Gospels. I mean, there's a bunch of Marys. And so it's a very common name, but this was a woman that Jesus would have known. This was a woman, again, from Luke 8, we understand that she was possessed by demons, she was healed. We understand later in Luke that she was one of the women that was helping to financially provide for the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. She was working, she was making things, she was selling them perhaps, and she was taking her proceeds and giving a portion of that to Jesus and to the disciples, interestingly enough, probably to Judas, and so that he could hold that money and help to pay for the food and the things that they would need on their ministry journey. She was invested in the ministry of Jesus. And so on this morning, this Easter Sunday morning, when she shows up at an empty tomb and mistakes Jesus for a gardener and says that she wants to fix it and manage it and try to control the situation and rewrite the story, he interrupts her efforts with one word, Mary, her name. He calls her by the most personal thing that she possesses, her identity the name tag that she would be wearing. He says, Mary. God always does that, doesn't he? Like when Jesus was calling the disciples, he calls out to Simon Peter by his name. We see at the burning bush when God's power and his presence and his voice are speaking from a bush, he calls out to Moses who is just tending his father-in-law's sheep and he says, Moses, Moses. We read later in the scriptures that every one of our names, for those who believe, will be written down into the book of life. There is something about our name that God wants us to know he knows. I read somewhere, I have no source for this, but I love it, and so I'm going to quote it, and so you can just say that it's mine. It's fine. Nobody's going to, you don't have to cite this for like a term paper or anything. The enemy knows you by your name but calls you by your sin. God knows you by your sin and calls you by your name. That is one of the most profound truths in all of our lives. That God chooses to make us personal to him. When he calls us by our name. He speaks to us by our name. Your relationship with God is not congregational. It's not communal. It's not generic. It's not universal. It is personal. Now... I love my family. My wife was the one that was up here. She was the cute one, not Trevor. And so <laughs> my wife was up here. I love my wife. We have four children, Cooper, Branson, Tucker, and Kenley, 11, 9, 6, and 4. Pray for us. And so I love my family. But I have a personal relationship with every member of my family. It's not a general love. It is a personal love that is added all together. To make the love that I have for my family interestingly enough and this doesn't happen every single day and maybe that makes me a terrible father and husband I don't know but it probably does but yesterday I got individual time with every member of my family yesterday morning early I got my son Tucker up and we went to his baseball game later in the day I rode with my son Branson to my son Cooper's baseball game they were already there. Later in the afternoon, I spent individual time with my son, Cooper, going over our NCAA March Madness brackets. (laughs) Kenley and I spent some time last night, and she was talking to me about Easter and what she was going to wear today. And because we're good parents, we left our kids with my mother-in-law last night, and Corey and I went on a date to Walmart. (laughs) Right? Because, listen to me. I love each of my family individually. I love Cooper. I love Branson. I love Tucker. I love Kinley. I love Corey. Because it's not a congregational love. It's not a communal love. It's not a generic love. It's not a universal love. It is a personal love. And so her name on his lips gets her attention like nothing else could have. And so this is what she says at the end of verse 16. She turned to him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now the word Rabbani is only used twice in the New Testament and both times it's in reference to Jesus. This word teacher that it's translated out of Aramaic is used 58 times in the New Testament, 40 times it is very specifically Jesus, and the other 18 it is inferred to be Jesus. She is responding to him almost as personally as he responded to her. She calls out to him after he says, Mary, she says, "Rabbi, teacher, Lord, master, Jesus. This is so powerful. This is an incredibly powerful declaration from Mary toward Jesus. And then something really powerful even beyond that happens in verse 17. Look at this. Let's go to this quickly. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Here's something that I've never known until I was preparing for today. This is the first time that Jesus references the disciples as his brothers. It's also the first time that he references God as our God and references, references God the Father as our Father. Up to this point, he had talked about his God, God the Father. He had talked about the Father or his Father. But in this passage here, he says to Mary, go and tell my brothers And go and tell my brothers that I've got to go to our God, your God. Go and tell them that when we're a part of this family together that he is your father just like he's my father. Now, what has changed? He's been teaching for three years. He's been walking around talking. He's used a lot of words. What's changed is that it's Easter. It's resurrection. He went to the cross and he came back to life. And the resurrection power of God brings with it the ability for us to all be family. It brings with it the power of God the Father into all of our lives. There is something about the resurrection that opens up the fatherhood and the family of God. And that is a powerful statement here. And so when her disillusionment gets confronted, when her fix-it mentality is shown to be futile, when she is accepted as the daughter of God, you know what she does? She takes out her megaphone. And she shouts it out. She declares who he is in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. So Jesus tells her to go to the disciples. Go to my brothers. Tell them what's happened here. And so she does. Verse 19 says this. On the evening of that first day of the week. When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, did you see what was happening here? Like, if we're just going to keep using the metaphor here of the story, this is the scene, this is the setting, if you will. You know where where it's taking place? Behind locked doors in a house. Now, keep in mind that these disciples have already received the news that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Like, They should not be hiding for fear that people are going to come get them. They should be out bragging about, we got it right. We've been with the guy for three years who told the truth. He said he was coming back to life, and he did. Like, if there was a megaphone, you know Peter would have been yelling into a megaphone. I was right. You were wrong. Hello. Right? This is what the disciples should have been doing. But where are they at? They're behind a locked door, hiding for fear Of the Jewish leaders. Fear locks us away from the life we were intended to live, always. Always. Fear always locks us away from the life that we are intended to live. And so the question today is what are you afraid of? What is it that you and I are afraid of? Are you afraid of your health? Are you afraid of the health of the people you love? Are you afraid of the uncertainty of your future? Or maybe you're afraid that the future is getting here faster than you want it to. Maybe you're afraid the future's not getting here as fast as you want it to. Maybe you're afraid that your past is going to catch up to you. What are you afraid of? Now here's the second question. What has your fear of those things caused you to miss out on? Like where have you locked yourself away emotionally, relationally, mentally, physically, spiritually? What have you locked yourself away from? What have you locked your heart away from? What relationships have you missed out on? What experiences have you missed out on? Because you've been locked away behind a closed door in fear of something that you actually have victory over. Because these guys, were, they were in relationship. They were the brothers of a guy who literally just came back to life. I'm probably bragging about that. I'm probably kind of, you know, getting a nine ninety 500 business cards from Vistaprint and just handing those out like I hang out with Jesus, <laughs> right? Like I'm going to let people – I'm not going to be locked away in fear and miss out on the experiences and the relationships that God has designed for my life. And so notice what Jesus' remedy to their fear was. Verse 21, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me – I am sending you. The resolution to their fear was not bigger locks on the doors. The resolution to their fear was opening the doors wide open and sending them out. Like that, that, it doesn't even seem like that makes sense. Like we would think that if Jesus understood their fears, like they seem rational, like we understand they just killed Jesus. And they're probably going to come to the people that Jesus was hanging out with and try to kill them, too. And if I'm the disciples, I realize that, yeah, Jesus raised from the dead, but I don't know that I would. And so if they kill me, I'm just dead. And so I'm just going to go hide in my house, and I'm going to bring my friends with me so we can hang out together. And so I'm going to lock myself away. And Jesus said, no, 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 peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. There's a story being written. There's a a design that God has for your life. And it is not to stay away from the things that you're afraid of. It's to run toward them. Understanding that victory can be yours. Verse 26 says this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I can't even read that verse of scripture without laughing. One week later, where are the disciples? Locked away again. Like it took exactly a week for them to be so afraid again that they were in the house again, locked away, hidden away, afraid of everything that was out there. Okay, so the first time they had already heard that Jesus was raised from the dead. This time they had already seen him after he was raised from the dead. And yet they still were afraid and they still locked themselves away out of fear for what might happen. It took one week, and here's what I would say to you, and this is going to sound like the most pastoral thing I'm going to say all day, but I'm a pastor, so just get over it, okay? A once-a-week dose of Jesus is not enough to sustain you, right? I mean, it, it took a week for them to forget what they had experienced the previous week. You don't come to church so that you can get filled up. You fill yourself up all the time personally and come to church to celebrate with other people and to bring people who haven't, they don't have that ability yet to do that for themselves, to be self-feeding, and, and you bring them into this experience. A once-a-week dose of Jesus is not enough for you. It's not enough for me. Because what's going to happen is in the interim there, we're going to forget everything that we experienced back there, and we're going to lock ourselves away again. Jesus said to us that we were supposed to take up our cross daily. He didn't just say every Sunday morning. There is something about a personal relationship with God that has to be more often than once a week. So the disciples now, including Thomas, the guy that wasn't there the first time, Jesus did this incredible thing, showed him the side, showed him the hands. Now Thomas is with them. He wasn't there the first time. I think he might have gotten to the house, but they would already locked the doors and they weren't answering it for anybody. I don't know. I'm not sure how that story plays out. But Thomas was not there the first time. Now he's there. Look at this at the end of verse 25 and then verse 27. But he said to them, Thomas talking, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. Then he, Jesus, said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was not intimidated by Thomas's doubt. Like, I I don't know, somewhere in my past, I heard that if I have the faith of a mustard seed, I can move a mountain. And so I keep thinking that if I have any doubt, it's bigger than a mustard seed, and it overwhelms my faith. And I don't see that in Scripture. In Mark chapter 9, there's this powerful story. I quote it all the time, because about five years ago, my mom passed away from a battle with cancer. And during that two-year journey of walking this road with her, a woman filled with faith, believing God for her healing, I I I couldn't really come to grips with what faith and doubt really look like in the life of a person who believed. And so in Mark chapter 9, I see it depicted really clearly, and it probably reflects my heart more than anything, so it may not even speak to you, but there's a dad who has a sick child. And Jesus is talking to him, and that dad is asking Jesus to heal his child. And Jesus says to him, I can do it if you believe. And the dad says to him in Mark chapter 9, he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. I live in this tension. Maybe you don't, but I live in this tension of having faith and having doubt. I mean, I don't know that I would call myself Thomas, but man, there are so many times when other people have experienced the goodness of God and I felt like I missed out. I was in a room like this and people were worshiping and singing and I didn't feel a thing. I talked to people and they open their Bible, man, and they're reading and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't tell you like how much good stuff I got out of the scriptures today. And I'm like, really? I read it for a while and I got nothing. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand Like I, And I just feel like I've missed out. I feel like maybe I don't know Where I'm supposed to even look. And so Thomas tells the disciples very honestly. He's like, unless I see him. Like, the stories you're telling me are great. But unless I see him. Unless I personally get to touch his side and touch his hands. Unless I personally get to engage Jesus post-resurrection. Like, I don't know that I can believe. Jesus wasn't intimidated by that. You know what Jesus did when he showed back up in that house that day? The second time they were locked away, by the way. Jesus walked up to Thomas. He said, here's my hands. He said, here, Thomas, touch my side. Jesus did not rebuke Thomas because he wasn't sure. He said, no, 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 let me me help you. Let's have a moment here. Let's have an experience where you you can get your questions answered. Where you can experience the things that you're questioning or you're doubting or you're not sure about. And the truth of John chapter 20 in the life of Thomas is truth today for you. God's not intimidated by your doubt. He's not intimidated when you don't know what to believe. He's not intimidated when you aren't sure that you're experiencing what you're supposed to experience when others have seemed to do so themselves. Jesus is not intimidated by your doubt. Because I realized, like Jesus commended, He actually said to uh, Thomas, He said, "Listen, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe even when they don't see. You know who He's talking about? Me and you. Like, I've never touched Jesus' hands. I've never touched his side, and yet I can stand here with full faith and confidence today and say, I believe Jesus died on the cross, and I believe he was raised from the dead. And it's okay for me to live in the tension of Mark chapter 9 and say, I do believe, but God help my unbelief. That's faith. Scripture tells us that faith is the things that we hope for, the things that are unseen in our lives. But I realize when you're in a room like this, man, you want to experience what other people are experiencing. You want to feel what other people are feeling. You want to know what other people seem to know. And so Thomas responds in verse 28. Thomas said to him, Jesus, my Lord and my God. I don't know what part of this story today you may connect to, if any. I don't know if maybe you find yourself like Mary and you're a fixer. You're trying to manage your life. You're trying to make sure that your life fits in the story that you are writing. You're trying to control things, manage things, fix things so that it makes sense to you. So maybe you would say to a gardener, if you'll just tell me where he is, I'll go and get him. I'll fix this. I'll write it in the way that it makes sense. Maybe you're like the disciples and you're locked away because of fear. I don't know what your fear might be, but man, you're locked away. You've you've pulled yourself back from relationships. You've missed out on experiences. You're uncertain about how confident you can walk into tomorrow because you're just afraid. So, like the disciples today, maybe you just have this fear. Or maybe, like Thomas, you just cannot come to grip with your doubt. You just don't know how you walk in faith when you have some doubts and you have some questions. And yet Jesus showed himself to all of these people. He revealed himself to Mary in the tomb. He called her by name. He showed up in the midst of the fear in the house with the disciples. And he answered the questions of Thomas's doubt. And you know what the response was all three of those times? Mary said, Rabbi, teacher. The disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas said... My Lord, my God. In every single part of this story, there's a shouted out moment. There's a response moment. There's something that says, my heart has seen, my eyes have seen, my ears have heard, my soul knows. He called me by name. I experienced his goodness. He gave me peace for my fear. There's a shouted out moment. The question is, will you shout it out? Will you declare? Will you respond? If not, I think you and I would probably end up looking a lot like that Yu Kwang hotel in North Korea. Kind of a shell without full life inside. Just this unfinished story unwritten story I was told a long time ago that the best way that you can learn is to teach and I believe that the best way you can have faith is to proclaim because Easter didn't end at the cross Sunday came and what it declares to you and I is that God specializes in bringing dead things back to life Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. If you would say to me, with no one looking around today, Jeremy, on this Easter Sunday, I want to make sure that my life is really about the story that God is writing in me. And I know that today I am not a believer. I mean, maybe I believe on some level, but I know I'm not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And today I want to ask Him to forgive my sins. And I want to respond to him in such a way that he becomes the Lord and Savior of my life. With nobody looking around today, this is the best day for you to respond. Don't wait until tomorrow. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? You can put it right back down. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Anybody else? You can put it right back down. Let's pray together. God, I thank you today for the hands lifted. I thank you today, God, for the people that say, I need Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. I pray in this moment that you would forgive their sins. I pray, God, that you would respond to them as your word promises us that you would. And the party that we're trying to have here is nothing in comparison to the party that you say is happening in heaven right now because a sinner comes home. So, God, I thank you for that. And today I also pray for every person in this room that, like Mary, might be trying to fix it, control it, manage their life, rewrite the story that you're desiring to write for their life. God, I pray for them today that they would trust you to let the story play out. The end of a chapter is not the end of the story. Let them have confidence in that. God, I pray for every person like these disciples in this story that may be locked away because of fear. That, God, you would grant them peace and that you would give them the boldness and confidence to go out and embrace who you're calling them to be with the power that you give to them so that they don't have to be afraid anymore. God, I pray for every person in this room that may identify with Thomas today but they just have some doubts. So God, today I pray that you would help them to experience you in the fullness of who you are, to know that you are God. God, I thank you that you are a personal God and that you call us by our name. And I pray for that for every person in this place today. God, let us walk out of this place and shout it out that you are our Lord and you are our God. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com/cantonchurchga.